Today's Greatest Generation was recorded weeks ago, but comes out just a few days after the death of Aaron Eisenberg, who played Nog on DS9. Yeah, we are recording this on the Sunday night after he passed away, and we just felt like it would not be right to put out an episode without acknowledging the great work that Aaron Eisenberg put into the world, the positive energy that he put into the world, and, uh, you know, express our condolences to his family and friends because he went too soon. You hear all the time about how Star Trek is a family, and that family is definitely hurting right now, so we just want to send his friends and family, uh, all of our best. It's one of those moments that makes you realize that uh, you don't have any idea how much time you have, and so make the most of it. That's definitely a feeling that's been expressed, right? Because he was 50, which is uh, terribly young. Yeah, and I think we've already talked quite a bit on this show about how much admiration we had for him as an actor. I mean, I think he kind of came onto the show as just kind of a, almost like an extra, but... yeah. <laughs> but kind of really like came into his own as an actor over the course of Deep Space Nine to the point where I think the writer's room really noticed what a powerful uh, instrument he had and started giving him more and more to do. Yeah, he kind of made the case for himself and his character, didn't he? Yeah, and and in a lot of ways became one of the emotional cores of uh, a really great television show. Yeah, yeah. He will be missed. Not just the cast and crew of Star Trek, but a lot of fans around the world are really sad right now. And uh, and I think we are too. Yeah, you can't mingle with the community and go to events and not have heard about just what a lovely guy Aaron Eisenberg was. Yeah. It's kind of strange because we've got, you know, probably two months worth of episodes recorded that are in the can and unreleased. So it's... Uh, it's hard to know like how any of that will play, but we didn't want to let this moment pass without acknowledging what a great dude Aaron Eisenberg was and, and what a tragedy is that he's gone. Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to The Greatest Generation, Deep Space Nine. It's a Star Trek podcast about Deep Space Nine from a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. What's the show about again? Uh, embarrassment. Mm, it is. <laughs> I think top line embarrassment and then like you uh, you go down one bullet point and indent one space. Mm-hmm. Star Trek. Really, that's a real, like, slide-read take on what we do. I mean, if we were going to just have, like, an image, an image yeah. that were to tell the story of The Greatest Generation, what do you think that would be? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Us scrambling to turn off the podcast when our wives walk in on us recording it? I'll give you a hint. It's the image I just sent you, which was my driveway and two <laughs> drains into my sewer line. That feels like us, right? Two drains into mm. a sewer. Yeah. That's you and me. It us. And, uh, you know, aspirationally, we want digital sunglasses to be descending on those two drains. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then the text deal with it popping up. Yeah. I mean, that's how you make it funny. Yeah. Adam, I had a, uh, I had a bad bit moment yesterday. Oh, really? 
Yeah. Do you want to do our beloved segment? All I do is bits. All I do is bits, bits, bits. No matter what. You're always doing bits, bits, bits. No matter what. You're always doing bits, bits, bits. I was doing bits. Bad bit moment. Bad bit moment. I don't think I have one, but I sure would like to hear yours. So, I, uh, as you know, have terrible skin. Mm. Skin is really the bane of my existence. Yeah. You know, recently my wife got us new insurance, so our insurance changed. And every time insurance changes, I try and see a dermatologist because there's always just fun, all kinds of fun shit going on with my skin. But one thing that has been bothering me since I was in college is a little little patch of skin, like just above my knee on my thigh, but uh, on the back. Always a little bit itchy. It's the part of your leg that your dick touches, right? <laughs> I wish my dick got down there. Uh, that would be great. <laughs> That's where I measure from. I measure from the back of my knee, upwards. <laughs> um, and uh, this is not eczema or psoriasis. It's not a tag. It's like four or five square inches of just slightly itchy skin. 13 inches is a tough load. I don't treat you gently. Oh, it's not something you can sink a pin into. No, and it's not Mm. something you can even see. There's not like a a rash or anything. But uh, this dermatologist I've been uh, going to see, she had an x-ray done of my spine to see if there was like a nerve being pinched or something. That sounds excessive. I know. (laughs) Like you get a spinal tap for a rash. What kind of doctor are you going to? (laughs) Hey, everybody. Hi, Hi, Dr. Nick. She sends me to a neurologist then. Mm. And I I went to the neurologist and he did like a pretty lengthy battery of tests on me, uh, mostly to do with my balance to see if, (laughs) if he could detect any neuropathy that might be leading to this. When you went to the office for the first time and you were given like the new patient ingestion forms, mm-hmm. uh, did you ask for extra blank pages and were, were like, <laughs> I uh, I just got insurance, so I'll be having the everything you do. Yeah, the pent up demand <laughs> form. I don't know. I've, I've never had an MRI. What's that like? <laughs> I mean, it has been it has been floated as a possibility in the investigation of this Jesus. ailment. So I saw the neurologist. He was like a a uh, weird older gentleman, and uh, <laughs> he ran a series of tests on me, and then, and then just kind of, you know, was like, "I don't think this is neurological. I think your dermatologist is wrong, and uh, you got a bum steer." Throwing some and shade. So the neuro- the dermatologist, then I had a follow up with because <laughs> she needed to like make a determination based on whatever the neurologist oh, no. uh, decided. And she's uh, she's like opening up my uh, my file, and I'm looking. I'm watching her just mess around on the iPad, and she goes, "Whoa, <laughs> it's not something you love hearing in a doctor's office." And I said, uh, <laughs> "What's up?" And she said, it, "Nothing. It's just that he sent a, a a a real hell of a document here." And she turns the iPad around and shows me, and. What he wrote when he was meeting with me was like every thought that he had, both things that he spoke out loud and also things that he thought in his in his mind, he wrote out in like extremely ornate longhand cursive. 
What? Had you noticed he was doing this when he was with you? I mean, I could see that he was writing, but I didn't see what it looked like. And when she turned it around, it was like super aspirational level of cursive that he writes in. And uh, I go, boy, got a real declaration of independence situation here. Is this John Hancock on the bottom of that? And the dermatologist just goes, what do you mean? All I do is bits, bits, bits. No matter what. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How do you make a reference more broad than that? I know. <laughs> I I didn't I didn't know the answer to what do you mean? Like that's how at a loss I was that that didn't go over. What did you do? I think I think I just played it off like a I don't know. <laughs> just goofing around, you know? Like one of those don't pay any attention to me. Wow. That's the fallacy, right? Is that like you you start to tell yourself that you're worth paying attention to <laughs> and you're not. People tell me that all the time. (laughs) I wonder if your dermatologist wasn't doing that thing where where a person is reading and you're saying something and they don't pay attention. Yeah, maybe. And then clearly, like, your body language is expecting a reaction to a thing that you said, and she's like, oh, shit. I wasn't listening. I'll say this. Uh, If I happen to be distracted while having a conversation with somebody like my wife... (laughs) <laughs> and I and I realized like oh shit like I need to snap back into attention. I, I didn't I didn't uh, register the last few lines that she said. What do thing. you mean is sort of a great reply because it's yeah. asking for more information but not admitting that you weren't listening. Yeah, but it also kind of had the tone of like a pretty girl in high school saying that to you in in terms of like I can tell that you think you're funny, but. I am here to tell you that you're not funny, <laughs> you know? The typing into her her iPad intensifies after this moment. <laughs> like, I now believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that Benjamin's problem is neurological. <laughs> <laughs> Did you tell the derm that uh, the other doc said that, that they were wrong? Like, did you straight yeah. up say it? Wow. No, I mean, it was in the report. Uh, I mean, it wasn't. She didn't send me to this guy saying you have a neurological d- disease and need to go see this guy. She said your X-ray came back normal. There's nothing obviously, you know, pinching any nerves. But uh, but I'll send you to the neurologist and see if any further investigation is warranted. So hmm. he's basically saying he thinks she's uh, barking up the wrong tree in terms of diagnosing what's going on here so like i've never gotten a satisfying answer and like the idea that like there might be a specialist that can actually do something about this uh has been very enticing to me do you think it has anything to do with the piece of meteorite you keep in the pocket of your cargo shorts (laughs) i mean i'm just spitballing here yeah it's just lightly irradiated at all times (laughs) yeah Wow, so the mystery continues, huh? Yeah, just just another disappointing skin thing for me. Medical stress is, is the most purely American stress there is, right? It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. I love it too. Speaking of unique, Ben, I don't think we will ever see an episode like the one we're about to discuss today. Yeah, this is a special episode. Can't wait to get into it with you. So why don't we put into the MRI machine, Deep Space Nine, (laughs) Season 5, Episode (laughs) 5, Trials 
and tribulations. Do you realize how incredible this is? <laughs> no, of course you don't. This is a story that they thought to do around the 30th anniversary of Star Trek, the 30th anniversary more than 20 years ago. Wow, crazy to think about. Yeah. This episode opens with the arrival of a couple of no-nonsense gentlemen from the Department of Temporal Investigations. I'm Dahmer. Luxley. Unclear if that's a uh, Federation department, an Earth department, a Starfleet department. They walk around like they are flashing mental badges. Yeah. Everyone knows who they are. Except for they have no badges. That's what I'm saying. Like, like they, they carry themselves as if they have them. It's as though they don't need no stinking badges. <laughs> they are deeply serious about their job. Yeah. The kind of serious that gets mocked by others. They keep saying, like, we were not big fans of jokes, but then they, they're kind of doing bits a little bit. Like, they definitely have a shtick. Right, there's a... No one's asking him what they mean. Right. <laughs> At least people are game for their their little thing. Right. Go back to the beginning if there is such a thing. That's a, that's a little crack. That's not something somebody that doesn't like jokes would say. Right. That's someone who isn't listening would say. <laughs> there's a visual language in this episode that is obvious later but more subtle here, which is... You, you're putting serious people who have a serious job into serious costumes. And by that, I mean these guys are just wearing gray cloaks. There's, there's nothing about them that stands out. It's all, like, uh, it's all like pinstripe wool that you would see in just kind of like a drab business suit. Right. But it's kind of a Starfleet era set of, of garments. It's like a jacket over a, a vest over a shirt but all in the same fabric. Right. Very serious men. Ruddy-faced as well. They apparently are only hiring ruddy-faced white guys at the Department (laughs) of Temporal Investigations. The one guy looks like Clancy Brown to me, the taller guy. Yeah. And I thought for sure it was him. I had to look it up. He's got to get that a lot, right? Right. They're definitely Clancy Brown types. (laughs) Do you think that these guys, when they show up to auditions, also see Clancy Clancy Brown at those auditions? (laughs) Yeah, it's like... uh, Uh, He's going to get it. Yeah. But yeah, they they are here to investigate a a time crime. and uh, Or not a time crime, but like an incident where some Starfleets did some time traveling. And You know what they say about time crime, Ben? When you do the time crime, you have to do the time crime time. (laughs) <laughs> Did you ever watch the web series Space Talk from Dimension Eugene? No. This is a public access thing? This is a an early web thing that Eugene Merman did. Oh. Like, back in the, like, is YouTube going to be a thing days? Uh-huh. Uh, I think it was on Super Deluxe. Uh, it was like a talk show, and Eugene Merman was the talk show host, but it took place in space. Uh-huh. And, uh... <laughs> One of them opened with like, hey, welcome back to the show. Uh, today on the show, of course, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the invention of time travel. Or is it? <laughs> we can never know. 
<laughs> Time jokes are the greatest. Yeah. And that's yeah. why these guys are so uh, uninterested in such humor. Right. They've heard it all before, or have they? Oh, shit. But, uh, yeah, the, the little D went back in time, and uh, it's uh, it's sort of a Cisco retelling the story of how it, uh, structure of episode. Yeah. They show the ship in orbit of Cardassia, where they are picking up uh, the orb of inconvenient time travel <laughs> that, they, uh, that the Cardassians are, like, repatriating to Bajor. That's pretty nice of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of just like spontaneously the Cardassians decided to do the right thing on on some subject. You can't trust unmotivated nice from the Cardassians, can you? No. I wonder if this Arn Darvin character is somebody that the Cardassians knew knew who he was. I think so. Because uh, here's the thing. They, uh, there's this guy, Barry. This is Mr. Waddle. That comes up with the uh, with the orb. He's human. Comes into the mess hall, makes a big deal about how great it is to be back among humans. You know, drags Worf a little bit for being smelly, I guess. He says some kind of, like, offhand racist stuff. <sighs> Sorry. You know? Yeah, but it turns out he can say it because he is. Right. It's one of those moments, though, where, like, everybody in this scene thinks he is a human. And right. uh, Bashir and O'Brien are sitting there, like, hearing him say racist stuff in Worf's presence. And they, instead of uh, speaking up and uh, scolding Barry, they, like, they play it off and kind of, go like, tell Worf, like, oh, don't don't worry about him. He's kind of set in his ways, you know. <laughs> sure just throw out around the word Patak a lot. <laughs> Pretty uncomfortable. It's from a different time, you know. <laughs> His story is super interesting to me. Sort of like the guy who stayed on the volcano as it was about to explode. His story is he was left behind before the Klingon and Cardassian War popped off. Right. He's a, a dealer in, in gemstones, which uh, is has some interesting reverberations later in the story. But uh, he's going to be uh, taking a ride back to Deep Space Nine with them. So they, they set off, and uh, they're under cloak, and uh, suddenly there's a, uh, a banger. It's a temporal banger. What do we know mm. about chroniton particles? Commander Riker can tell us. They're creating a temporal vortex. Time travel. And uh, this temporal banger does a lot of things at once. It takes the antenna off of the top of the little D and then throws it into the bushes. <laughs> because their view screen is fucked. Their, sen yeah. their sensors are off. They've right. decloaked, and someone has activated the transporter. It's just bang, 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 bang. I was really impressed with the level of chill that Cisco maintains amidst all of this, because they know that something like pretty, pretty messed up is going on, and he never. He's like, he's like leaned back in his chair with his fingers crossed. Like he might as well be like sipping some of his captain's soup. The only way you flap Cisco is to like there's no, there's nothing unjust happening here. The right. way you get him loud and angry is putting him in a position to witness an unjust action. Yeah, he doesn't get morally outraged at a banger. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh when they get the uh when they get the tracking back on the view screen, uh there is a ship right in front of them 
They're still under a cloak, so uh, invisible to this ship, but uh, it is none other than the entrepreneur. No bloody A, B, C, or D. Looks pretty great too, right? Yeah. Is this the CG re- redo of the entrepreneur from the HD TOS? There are pages and pages and pages of production notes about this episode. And they made a new model of the OG entrepreneur for this episode. Wow. And they spent so much time on it. I believe it. They kind of operated from a position of paranoia because from what I read, they were afraid of super nerds scrutinizing their model and finding a mistake. And they didn't oh, want wow. that to happen. So they I mean what a what a what a weird fear to have yeah, what uh, it, as custodians of a of a franchise of a sci-fi franchise, right? Right. I mean, I wouldn't know what that's like at all. <laughs> but I think there's a that right there is the reason why things look so great in this episode and it starts with the model work and uh, all of these sets were built for the episode. It is pretty fucking great and pretty seamless. Yeah. I, there's got to be like a, a cost case to be made for making a new model also, right? Like, hey, if we make a new model, we can, you know, put it in the Air and Space Museum, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you're going to get extended value out of it. But I mean, you know, this is the same studio that threw the Enterprise D bridge into a dumpster right? Uh, after Star Trek Generations. So, I mean, I guess in certain circumstances they could see future value from this stuff, but not in other cases. I don't know. I don't know how they make these decisions. I mean, like, I remember going to a science museum when I was a kid and seeing, like, the Art of Star Wars exhibit and... They're just being like everything from when they made the first Star Wars was like in a glass case on display. And like, I don't understand why like it's so hard to predict what will be worth saving. There's probably not an area of this exhibit that had uh, any of the dialogue from the Star Wars movies in it. Like that's just no. uh, that's just an empty room. I don't like Sam. There's, there's nothing to see or appreciate there. <laughs> you, you're, you're saying that's not, not one of the artistic parts of Star Wars? Exactly. It's good, good thing I'm here to decode yeah. your jokes. <laughs> what do you mean? But yeah, so they've, they've traveled back in time, Adam. They need to figure out what happened and so they convene a McLaughlin group. Issue one. Worf is the presenter. What he presents to the assembled gathering there is that uh, the orb has been stolen by their passenger, right. uh, who they now believe to be Arn Darvin. His real name is Arn Darvin. He's a Klingon altar to look human. He is the first Ash Tyler in Star Trek history. Whoa. If you haven't seen Star Trek Discovery, you don't even know what that means, man. Yeah, he's a Klingon made to look like a human, which uh, back in original series days wasn't that hard. <laughs> I think yeah. you just you just rub the black face off of them, and then uh, that's that's what you get. You you rub the problematic darkening makeup. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the story that they tell is that Arn Darvin attempted to sabotage a uh, Federation colonization effort and failed, and it was then kind of excommunicated by 
Klingon intelligence. Like they sort of they sort of did that thing where they disavow all knowledge, like uh, like right. Mission Impossible always threatens to. But the 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 issue is that this this new Arn Darvin from their time is is now uh, has has transported himself off the little D. So they need to go find him. And it's funny that in the future, capitalism is punishment because this guy was sentenced to a life of of being a merchant, something that rubbed him the wrong way as a Klingon. I've got a hot take, Adam. Yeah. In the present, capitalism is also punishment. <laughs> well said. They're worried that he's going to go meet up with his younger self and uh, prevent the moment in history that caused his life to go to shit. I love this. This is an example, I think, of real life wagging a, a script dog because they got Charlie Stanford Brill to reprise his role as Aaron Darvin. And he's the same guy who played the same role in the Trouble with Tribbles episode. Yeah. And when they were workshopping what to do for this 30th anniversary episode, like the creators got together and were like, just spitballing shit. And Ira Stephen Bayer was like in some fucking restaurant with a couple of guys and he took his mouth out of the ass of a member of the blue man group and said and said is that charlie stanford brill like dining with his wife a couple tables over like that's why his uh, his goatee is blue he clocked him in public wow and was he like recognized him and like and was like maybe maybe you'd want to do star trek again and totally solicited him into doing this and that's how i think that's the core of how this whole episode came together like you start with him and his availability was charlie brill like were you just eating (laughs) ass and specifically eating the ass of a member of the blue man group (laughs) hence having a blue goatee how much pepto-bismol do you have to chug to make your poop blue (laughs) that is a lot of pepto yeah have you ever had like kool-aid turn your poop green no. That's a phenomenon. Is it? Do you have to yeah. drink green Kool-Aid or any Kool-Aid will do? I think I had red Kool-Aid turn my poop like bright green, like a a green that does not look like it should be biological in origin. You get some friends to check it out? Well, I, so- It had to hurt to flush on, it down, right? This was on a backpacking trip and we all <laughs> had this Kool-Aid and then like, and then like around the campfire, we we're like, hey, uh- so when I pooped today, and everybody was like exchanging notes on their turds, and it was like, wow, it happened to all of us. Must have been the Kool-Aid. <laughs> you had to bury it though, right? Yeah, you 100 gotta, feet from uh, trailer stream. Gotta do that. Six inches underground minimum. Boy, camping sounds fun. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> past Darwin fucked up by getting caught. And so what future Darwin wants to do is prevent past Darwin from getting caught. He wants to extricate himself from this timeline. You know, an ounce of prevention, pound of cure. Right. And this is exactly why Cisco, like Cisco does not want to get a visit from the Department of Temporal Investigations. What you don't want is your time travel poop being so close to the timeline. <laughs> yeah. That's what's happening yeah, you don't here. Want- you don't want the poop to despoil the time stream. Exactly. And Cisco really just doesn't want to deal with the paperwork. So, uh, you know, whether it's two ply or whatever, 
um, he orders the crew to prepare a mission whereby they will find Arn Darvin and prevent him from changing the timeline. And so uh, we get a great Tim Burton Batman getting ready sequence showing all of the little all of the little items as they uh, as they suit up and uh, most of the crew gets into some cool TOS era uniforms. Looks good in you, sir. I was wondering if they ever thought about including Garrick in this. Oh. In in the garment play, you know? Oh, like if he was uh, tagging along for some reason, he got to, like, fit them for their uniforms? Yeah, I just feel like he would have to be involved, right? Or do you just get it out of a replicator? Yeah, maybe you can just walk up to a replicator and say, like, circa 2306 uniform for a a lieutenant, and it spits it right out. Yeah. So what they find out is that uh, Arn has beamed over to either the space station or the old entrepreneur, and so they've got to, like, split the away team. Some of them going to the space station K-7. Cisco, right. Dax, and Bashir going to the old entrepreneur. Uh, and O'Brien. Right. And, uh, yeah, and, and so it's it's Worf and Odo that go to the space station. And the argument is made that this space station is a real teeny tiny little uh, operation. It's It looks big from the outside, but that's all storage. and uh, And there's really not that many people living aboard it. So Worf and Odo get into, like the cargoiest of cargo jackets and they beam over to the station and in their Starfleet regalia Dax Bashir, O'Brien and Cisco beam over to the entrepreneur and they're kind of like working their way inward they beam to either end of the ship and and start to eliminate candidates for Arn Darvinness these pockets are like a d cup on on Odo, right? Like, you can't use pockets this big. Yeah, this is like like pockets big enough to put like a fifteen inch laptop <laughs> on on your chest. You could you could carry four gallons of milk on the front of Odo's tunic. It's absurd. <laughs> He's just got like a straw coming out of each breast pocket. Yeah. Uh, and this is the first scene in the episode where uh, where the magic starts to happen, right? Like the yeah. idea of them occupying the same space of of characters like Ahura and Chekhov. Yeah, they beam over. We get like a, a crowded entrepreneur hallway, which is very like you know the couple of episodes of TOS that we've watched for Greatest Discovery. Like it is always remarkable how many. Like, how many people are, like, weaving in and out in the hallway? Because there's so many people that it's, like... Yeah. You can't, like, walk around looking at your phone on TOS. You know what really stuck out to me in the scenes of groups? Like, there are scenes of a lot of people that are clearly comps, and then there are others that are clearly recreated sets with modern actors inhabiting them. Right. I think you can tell the difference between how people walk. Yeah. Uh in the 60s show versus the versus the people walking around that are that are modern actors. I really think you can tell. I think you can too. And it's a very like subtle critique because for the most part this is totally fucking seamless. Yeah. But modern people do carry themselves a little bit differently. Yeah. And that's, like, such a weird... Like, why? Like, what changed? I don't know, but you can tell. But like, that, the way our shoes are manufactured or something? Yeah. 
Yeah, up to, up until uh, a little while ago, they were making shoes that could fit on either foot. One element of this that Dax comments on out loud is that the as the, that the woman women wear f- far less in this era, and uh, perhaps a certain posture is necessary to maintain the merest shroud of modesty. Right. Odo and Worf begin their investigation in the place that I would probably choose. They're over at the bar, the station bar. Yeah. And they see uh, they see a guy named Cyrano Jones interact with the bartender there, and he brandishes a tribble. And this is... Uh, her uh, wife reacts here to the, <laughs> to the cute, furry thing in a very fun way. May I hold it? Yeah. All of these scenes are like, you, you kind of... It's, it's a fun puzzle watching them, right? Like, you know, there's a close-up of Odo, and somebody walks right in front of him. Yeah. And that's a body double of Chekhov and Ahura. And then you cut to shot from TOS with Odo kind of in the in the background comped in. They went so far as to like change what film stock they shoot the show on to make it cut easier with the old stuff. Wow, that's great. They really went hard production-wise. It's pretty flawless. Like occasionally there are Shots that have, you know, it's like a wide shot of the bridge and like Kirk is in it and Dax is in it and she's like walking around and you totally believe that she's walking around in the same room as him. Yeah. You know, like they're not like, like down to like the motion tracking of shots where, you know, people's feet aren't floating around on the floor because they couldn't, they couldn't get it exact. Like they got it exact every, every shot pretty much. Forrest Gump was 94, right? Yeah. This is 96. I just feel like, you know, for a long time, Forrest Gump was the measuring stick for, like, comps of this kind. Yeah. And in only two years, it got so much better than Forrest Gump, and Forrest Gump looks like trash compared to this. Yeah, we recorded a Forrest Gump episode for Friendly Fire, and we're totally blown away at how badly those effects hold up, and... It's amazing that these effects hold up perfectly. They really do. Exactly. So that introduces the triple to the environment. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think, sets the tone for fun, because from here we cross-cut between the Odo and Worf mission and the Bashir and O'Brien part of the mission, where yeah. uh, Bashir, I, I mean, I don't think that we can let it... His hair is a disaster in this episode, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it, it looks like they tried to go for a Caesar and then bailed out at the last minute. It's like they didn't they didn't want to cut it, but they did want it to be more 60s. He looks like Seinfeld in that episode where they lower the water <laughs> pressure of his apartment, you know? Yeah. I mean, O'Brien's not looking great either, right? With all the, like, bl- brill cream in his hair to try and force a curly-haired man's hair into a straight-haired man's style. I would say that, like, of everyone, these two are the weirdest looking in the transition, you know? I wonder if they paired him up for that reason. Yeah, like they're visually very funny. Yeah. <laughs> they have a great scene with a random crew person. Like and it's a fun interaction because it, it demonstrates some like quick improvisational thinking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. by Bashir especially. They've definitely taken like two oh one at U C B when they uh when, when this guy kinda 
he walks up and he's he's like, Scotty told me to do this. And they're like, uh, but, 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 but. O'Brien's like, I'm a shopkeeper. <laughs> How can I help you? I'm just finishing up this soup. Stir, stir, stir. <laughs> <laughs> Bashir really saves the day here. He's great. The uh, job pressure's been getting to him. Why don't you uh, take over? Yeah. Uh, and and uh, w- the way he plays it off is that he's doing some medical study of stress among people in the workforce, and that uh, O'Brien is just real, real stressed. So maybe this uh, this other ensign should take over where uh, where he left off. I think Bashir should continue his study of O'Brien W slash R slash T stress. <laughs> like like henceforth, this should be a long term project. I like it. Uh, in the bar, Odo and Worf discuss Tribbles, and it's clear that Worf knows all about these guys. Yeah, Worf tells a story wherein the Klingon Empire attempted a Tribble genocide. <laughs> it must have been the cutest war ever. <laughs> Except, like, could you imagine the smell on the Tribble homeworld, like, of all the singed hair? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's- not uh, not nice to smell. Do you think if you beam down to the Tribble planet, it's like falling into the dumpster behind a, a place that cuts hair? <laughs> Ugh, Jesus. It's so gross. I feel like a batleth is uniquely bad for a war like that. Yeah. Like you're probably, you know, it's like you're constantly getting Tribbles just kind of like stuck on the tips of of the batleth and, and then you have to like reach out and pull them off and then keep, keep swinging. <laughs> What you need is a Klingon flamethrower, you know, one with two tips. <laughs> it's going to make the smell even worse. Yeah, pretty bad. On the entrepreneur, a uh, red alert sounds, and Dax and Cisco uh, have to cease their, their scans, their, uh, their hunt for Arn. And uh, they're, in the, they're in the elevator when they get the idea, like, oh, yeah, like, let's... Uh, Let's give. Let's blow in a call to the little D and see if they can tell us what this red alert's all about. And uh, there's a funny little moment where Cisco tries uh, tapping the embroidered uh, Starfleet logo on his chest uh, before realizing that he has to whip out his uh, his Moto Razor to to blow in a call. I feel like eleven out of ten actors ham and cheese this moment up but Avery Brooks does not the the like snap of his fingers and like oh yeah right he seems uniquely able to do in a way that does not laugh at him funny yeah I mean like you give this moment to him for the same reason that you give the we don't understand how to use the elevator joke to uh, Columbini and and Alexander Siddig like the right they they can do that that like Oh, of course, it's that simple, and we didn't realize it, like, you know, take. That is, a, that is such a great point, and I wonder to what degree, like, you almost begin in an episode like this, breaking down the references and the jokes, and then you work on who you're going to give them to. Like, who is the most able to sell right. this visual gag that we're going to play with? There's so much about this episode that I wondered, a lot of this dog has to get wagged by the available footage right tale like what scenes can we use that we can plausibly comp people into like what like you have to watch the trouble with tribbles through and carefully mark out the scenes where 
okay, like we can build a set that looks like that. We can get, you know, Odo sitting in the background there in a way that is believable. Like all of that stuff is like, you know, there are maybe 10 or 15 shots in this episode where a contemporary DS9 character is put into 1960s Star Trek shot. Right. And done well. Like they didn't try for ones that they couldn't quite nail at all. Like they had remarkable restraint in this. Yeah. But it makes me wonder like how the writing process worked. Did they start from what clips they wanted to use? Ben, I hate to uh, I hate to remind you of a moment in your past, but it's the raw materials, right? Where do you get the raw <laughs> materials for an episode like this? Like without them, you don't have an episode. You yeah. just need to see what you have first. Right. It's like checking the cupboard before uh, before cooking a dinner. Back in my days in uh, in New York, early after film school, I was uh, you know hanging around the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater quite a bit, and I approached some sketch comics about making like sketch videos with them because mm-hmm. I was like, I have a camera, and at the time I had a a little studio in Tribeca that I was renting out for the astonishingly low rate of $200 a month. In your defense, you had to have sex with a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I had like a green screen stage in there. And I was like, we could, sh- we could shoot anything. Make your dreams come true. But uh, we, shot like a, we shot like a couple of sketches that required green screen. And one of them was uh, two pilots in a cockpit. And like we shot the two pilots and then I was going to comp in the cockpit behind them mm-hmm. and I could not find a good plate for the cockpit mm. and it just like like I just never finished the video because I couldn't find a good enough background for it I was like fuck like what an idiotic thing to have wasted the six hours shooting this to not be able to finish it because like I can't google search the right backdrop for it yeah I mean that's a great comparison that's the lesson yeah glad that I learned that lesson when the stakes were that low <laughs> There is a through line in this entire episode. Like if, like if you were just gonna describe what the motivations are for every character, and you find and you got to Dax, Dax wants to meet people. Yeah, Dax is on kind of like a tourism tip. She really is, and she is totally amped at the idea that it's Koloth's D seven. Yeah, that is approaching both the station and the ship, and she wants to see him. It's not as if he would recognize me. She's on some baby boomer nostalgia. She's like so excited to be back in the fifties. Yeah, and this isn't the only time she expresses feelings like this about a character in this time frame. Like, there's a tension between her and Cisco, and Cisco's always like reining her in. Bashir's goal in this episode is to fuck his great-grandmother. You saw the way she looked at me. On the off chance that it's a time paradox. It's fucking nuts. So (laughs) O'Brien and Bashir run into this pretty lady in the turbo lift earlier in the episode, and then they rerun into her later. And she's like, hey, you know, I'm due for a uh, a physical later, and here's exactly what time it is. Yeah, so if you want to see me with my pants off or whatever... (laughs) And Bashir, Bashir, like, totally unprompted after she leaves, is talking to O'Brien, and he's like, I have to fuck her, right? Like, (laughs) if she's my great-grandma, I have to do it. And O'Brien's like, why did your mind go to that? (laughs) Why is that your first stop? (laughs) It's insane. I mean, she clearly is hitting on him. Yeah. But there is no reason, I mean... 
he understands that it may be his great grandmother because of her last name, but yeah. there is no evidence that he must fuck her. No. I mean, I'd say that that's one of the biggest logical leaps that this episode makes. The biggest logical leap this, that this episode makes by far is that anyone would want to fuck Bashir when he has this haircut. <laughs> <laughs> Got to grow it out, Doc. I don't know. Maybe not go out so much for the next two or three weeks. Yeah. See what happens. More and more. More. Dear sweet. More. 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 You need everybody? More. Stop. Hammer time. So O'Brien and Bashir wind up over on uh, Space Station K7, and uh, they they kind of walk into the bar and, and uh, take some shots at Worf and Odo for spending their entire mission in the bar. They're like, wow, real nice assignment you guys got here. <laughs> in, in the midst of this conversation, they tiptoe up to the, the idea that there are a lot of Klingons already in the room. And you might not have realized this because the Klingons of TOS do not look like Klingons. Right. This is an era in which the, uh, the members of the Klingon Empire chose not to remain Klingon. <laughs> They've got no loaf, Ben. Not a bit of loaf. It's just a thin veneer of too dark foundation makeup. Yeah. Uh, Worf has been low-key embarrassed the entire time just to be sitting at this table, sitting with Odo. Yeah. And he doesn't break this feeling at all when they clock these Klingons at the bar. I thought it was pretty brave of the showrunners to leave in the take where Michael Doran makes eye contact with the camera and just says, they're in blackface. <laughs> All of the people in this scene are in blackface. It's fu- <laughs> This is like, this is a Hall of Fame uh, racism scene in Star Trek. Right. Because, because on the one hand, you get this, and on the other hand, you get that O'Brien is white people racist because he can't tell the difference between Kirk and any other random white guy in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> That's Kirk? Yeah, he's got about about the same haircut. (laughs) What's the difference? (laughs) This also is a Hall of Fame side boob scene in Star Trek. Oh, yeah. Every waitress in this place is uh, is basically wearing Oshkosh Bagash overall with nothing under it kind of deal. They cut out the scene where they pull out wide to show the name of the bar, and it was Dump Outs. <laughs> bar and Grill. Yeah. Yeah. The amount of uh, of Hollywood tape being used in these outfits. Yeah. Pretty excessive. A Klingon starts talking shit to Scotty, the real Scotty, and he takes great umbrage with this. Oh, he sure does. And what happens is it ignites a bar fight that lasts, and I counted, 90 seconds. <laughs> it is bonkers. There's a lot going on in this bar fight, because it was like a pretty compound action scene. As Like, you can tell it's a pretty involved compound action scene in the original footage. Right. Like, there's there's the whole bit where... Uh, where Jones like is is replicating drinks for himself behind the bar and like walking around knocking them back and then the bartender comes back and takes the other one like there's there's chairs flying there's there's punches getting thrown and uh, and they add another layer of that by comping in 
O'Brien and Bashir and Odo and and Worf into this into these shots and and there's a bunch of shots where like it is like O'Brien punching a guy where clearly like they painted out somebody else punching that guy. It's really cool because it blends green screen and real set construction. Like right. you can cut back and forth and pan through and foreground background a lot of this stuff. It Yeah. It hangs together great. And they see they see Arn Darvin like through through a door when the when the bartender comes back in. It's Darvin. A great comp where he's yeah. just in the background going like, whoop, gotta go. If you're Arn, you gotta stay away from the bar, right? What yeah. are you doing? Yeah, that's not the place to be. No. Um, the the thing that tips them off is that uh, Odo had come into the bar and ordered a rack to Gino. And the waitress has never heard of that, but it's the second time she's gotten that order today. So yeah, Odo and Worf spot Arn and, uh, and give chase. But uh, O'Brien and uh, Bashir are not quite as lucky. They they get uh, the the uh, the Starfleet MPs catch them. There's a fun scene where Dax and Cisco run into Kirk and Spock. Yeah, and Dax makes it clear that she's very attracted to one of them. Those eyes. And Cisco just assumes that it's Kirk, but it's Spock that she likes. This green uniformed Kirk era is so great. Like it's the uh, it's Starfleet's version of the man and the legend arrow when the <laughs> when the insignia is is like at the belly pointing at the belly. Yeah, it's so fun. Yeah, but in Dax's mind, the legend is really Spock. And that's how we see Kirk for the first time. We see him after the bar fight when he sort of dresses down Chekhov. Like all of the assembled bar fighters are lined up, and this yeah. is another great bit of production here because O'Brien is standing in a line with everyone else. It's really well done, like Kirk casting a shadow on O'Brien and stuff. Who started the fight? I don't know, sir. That shadow was key, wasn't it? Yeah. There's a lot about this scene that I thought was really interesting. Like, this is not the kind of reprimand that Cisco or Picard ever had to do, where they get everybody that works for them, like, standing in a line at at parade rest and, like, tell them that they really fucking fucking blew it i can't remember that ever happening and uh i just thought i think that's so interesting like the idea of of progress being baked into this kind of moment the future shame free ben yeah i mean but also just like the professionalism of starfleet is so much further along that meeting is adjourned and after the group is released Bashir and O'Brien realize that the Tribbles have multiplied, and they are multiplying at an alarming rate. They get the story from Arn Darvin with remarkable ease, right? Right. It's almost like off-screen, like like Odo just kind of reporting back to Cisco, like, "Hey, we caught him, and he gave a full confession." He he gloats a little bit, like, "Oh, you'll never be able to stop me because the bomb is in a Tribble." But it's like, yeah, but we know what the plot is, so like we can actually work on the problem. <laughs> It's weird. It's like it's like they're not occupying the same logical space because he's got the confidence of a bad guy who has just succeeded in his mission. Right. And Bashir and O'Brien and Cisco, like the DS9 crew are operating from the position of being time travelers. Right. <laughs> like if only we could travel in time and stop this. I wonder if they ever thought to use the orb multiple times. 
Like, if they did something, they fucked it up and then had to redo it using the orb. Yeah. Like, like Bashir fucks his great-grandma, decides that uh, <laughs> that was not what he should have been doing. Yeah. And then, they, and then they back up the tape so he doesn't. There is an implication that Dax has fucked McCoy, isn't there? I think it's more than an implication. I think she confides. She confesses that she does. He had the hands of a surgeon. Dax knew McCoy was going to be a great doctor when he brought the speculum into the bedroom. <laughs> there, uh, so this this is the part of the Trouble Tribbles episode where it starts to be just Tribble bits. Yeah. Like Kirk comes in and sits down in the captain's chair and it is a Tribble whoopee cushion. Yeah, the whoopee Tribble bit... Uh, I mean, it's a classic. My farts don't sound anything like that. It's the same problem with the triple as it was with Arn Darwin to begin with, which is they need to determine whether the bomb is on the entrepreneur or the station. Yeah. And so Cisco and Dax do a scan of the entrepreneur and eliminate that, but uh, then they need to go search the station. And the, the mathematics of this problem are discussed quite a bit. There's like millions of tribbles now. 1,771,561. And only one triblom. <laughs> yes. Yes, Adam. But only one triblom. <laughs> they can't possibly scan these tribbles fast enough, and they should know that, and yet they still do it anyway. Why? Because we've got to try, you know? Yeah. Got to try and stop the timeline from changing. And so... Cisco and Dax wind up in one of these grain silos, and this is the grain that is going to be used in this Federation colonization effort, and the Tribbles have been feeding on it and have basically eaten themselves dead because they're at one point in the in the silo talking about how all of these Tribbles have eaten themselves to death. Pretty gruesome. It kind of fucks up the math, though, right? Like, the, the multiplication math only works if all of the triples are alive and reproducing. Right. But anyways, they're like, there's some fun match-on-action stuff where, you know, Kirk is in a hallway and he opens kind of an overhead trap door and triples come dumping out of it and you cut to the inside and Cisco and Dax watch triples fall through that door. Pretty nice sequence. Yeah. And, uh... As they scan, they uh, they figure out the which which of the tribbles is the explosive one, the triblom, if you will. <laughs> Thank you. They find they find the needle in the universe of needles. Was Kirk's standing under the storage compartment the first instance of like overstuffed closet in an eighties movie, <laughs> like visual gag? It is a rough gag that really doesn't stand the test of time because he definitely like leans into the yeah you know, he like does. if you are as put out as your face says why are you like angling your body to get more under this hole yeah he was really told to sell it yeah. clearly how do you think that this triblom was going to operate because when Cisco finds it he picks it up he moves it around before finally putting it on top of his tricorder to be beamed away. But, like, right. how did it actually work? Like, how did how did Darwin expect it to kill Kirk? Was it on a timer? Maybe it's a time triblom. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it's a proximity triblom, but it's, uh, it's uh, Kirk's proximity that's the issue. Yeah, I, I guess that would have to be it. Yeah. 
So he puts it on top of the tricorder. Kira, in one of her only scenes in the episode, beams it into space. It explodes. It blows big. Uh, Here's the thing about this scene, though, Ben. So they've been using the transporter at intervals that the old entrepreneur allows because it sensors cycle in such a way that uh, they can use the transporter or or decloak like whenever the the sensors cycle. But there's no mention of this as soon as the Triblom is found and beamed away. Kira just does it. So she breaks the rules of the episode by by saving the day. Well, maybe she decloaks, beams for three seconds, and then cloaks up again. Yeah, but it's very specific moments that the old entrepreneur sensors allow for this window. It's not just every three seconds. It's a three-second moment that they can predict and and use. Maybe. It didn't bother me. Oh, it bothered me big time. I'm sorry, buddy. <laughs> well, uh, the day is saved. Uh, Arn Darvin gets nailed by Kirk as history intended and uh, the uh, yo-yos from the Department of Temporal Investigation are like, great, well, is that the whole story? And Cisco says, well, no, I went back for one one more moment in the past before we uh, return to the future using the orb that Kira conveniently learned how to use. Did we have any story element to explain how the orb got recovered, by the way? Nope. <laughs> Did not. They're like for the orb being the primary motivator for this story, we rarely see it. We don't know how it works. We only know that it does, and then we don't know where it goes. Yeah. So, so this last moment that he went back for though is uh, is a little a little check in with the cap on the bridge of the entrepreneur, and uh, it's it's Cisco just kind of uh, expressing his admiration for one of his predecessors as a Starfleet captain. Before I leave, I just want to say it's been an honor serving with you, sir. And uh, it's really well done. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a touching moment, like a touching moment to be able to construct from old footage of, of Shatner against new footage of Avery Brooks. There are some pretty neat photographs of how they did this and the actor that Avery Brooks replaces in this scene. It's really well done. Is it, uh, it? I wondered if this was footage from the Trouble with Tribbles, or if they pulled it from a different episode. It's from Mirror Mirror. Oh, interesting. So they they harvested footage from not just the Trouble with Tribbles, but from multiple episodes in order to make this one work. It's really cool and well done. Yeah. So the Time Police have that moment where they're like, "Yeah, I would have done the same thing." Kirk's pretty cool. Yeah. After an earlier jag about how he's like basically public enemy number one from their perspective. The rules never apply to Kirk in uh, any way or in any time. Yeah, that's really true. Yeah, and it, and it seems like these guys are basically paragons of that phenomenon. Like they consider him to be a menace, but also totally drop that the second the idea of admiration comes up. Right. The time police leave through ops publicly, which gives like they, they sort of, time police perp walk themselves away (laughs) everyone lets out a big sigh of relief and then we cut to our button ben our button on the promenade yeah cisco uh walks down to talk to odo odo is relieved that the time police did not ask about (laughs) k not going to be said out loud it's going to be revealed in a cutaway to quark 
The camera pulls out from Quark at the bar. It reveals that the bar is piled high with tribbles. There are tribbles on the walls. There are tribbles on his head. There are tribbles all over the floor of the promenade. Everybody's holding a tribble. Station is lousy with tribbles, Adam. Up to and including Quark, who is sort of wearing one in a Carmen Miranda fashion. (laughs) Wordlessly. I think a Carmen Miranda fashion would be he has a hat and there are lots of tribbles on the hat. Yeah. Instead, he's just wearing a tribble. I would be so upset if I had to get into makeup and I had zero lines. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you really hope that they built this, this clip into a shoot day on a different episode where he's actually doing right. something. Yeah. Just for his sake. Yep. You really want to do this here. Now, okay, okay, let's do it. Do it. Did you like the episode, Adam? <sighs> There's two ways to answer it. Like, did I like the episode? Yes. Did I think it was a good episode? No. Wow. I did not. And here's why. The biggest deal in the entire episode is Department of Temporal Investigations. That there is a department and that these two work for it and we know nothing about them or their work or anything. Not the first time time travel has been has come up in this season in this series and this is the first we hear about it. It's bonkers. Cisco does not ask them anything about their jobs or how they do them, which I mean, Cisco's a curious person. I think he should have and could have asked questions to have a little uh, a little banter or back and forth with them. I mean, I think it makes the case that he's dealt with them before or other people from their organization. What's weird is that this is the first time and the last time. Right. We don't run into the, te- the Department of Temporal Investigations again in Star Trek. This is it. <laughs> and that's insane to me. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they're like an artifact of a, of a time travel loop that got closed. Here's the bigger issue, though. While the episode was super enjoyable and I liked it, there's no story here. This is nostalgia instead of story. Yeah. It's an excuse to take a museum tour, and that's fun. It makes for a fun episode, but it doesn't make for an episode, per se. Like, I feel like this is what people wanted Discovery to be, but there was no way it could be. Like, you know that by watching an episode like this. Right. You can't go back and live in this for eight or 16 episodes and make a series out of it. It's not sustainable. There is an absurdity in the idea that a show from the 60s is in continuity with a show from the 90s that is exposed by this episode. Mm -hmm. Like the idea that these like crappy sets from TOS are like a real spaceship is such a hard thing to make believe in the context of the far, far better sets of Deep Space Nine. I am fully willing to suspend the visual disbelief of that. I really am. I really am. But there's just not enough story here. They really have to kind of write themselves into a pretzel to make it make sense. Yeah. I understand they're doing the best they could with what they had story-wise. To a certain extent, like, this is the best they could have done with the with one of the best TOS episodes yeah. and, and most memorable that they had. Like, what else could they, what else could they do, I guess? The stakes just never felt dangerous in any way, ever. And maybe in that way, this episode is a success if what you're trying to do is just make a fun, broad episode that that most people who have ever watched Star Trek could enjoy. Successful. I think that's what they set out to do. Like they, it's it's just a 
hey, wouldn't it be weird if? Yeah. Like it's like a it's like a sideline comic series. Yeah. Of uh, what if the X Men met the crew of the Enterprise D or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> like it's not meant to like push the canon forward or anything. It's just for funsies. It's a little thirtieth anniversary tribute. Yeah, it's a it's an anniversary bottle, huh? Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I do too. I'm not I'm not saying that I didn't. I had to rewind several times to like wrap my mind around the story for sure. And, right. Uh that's because the story is entirely exposition. There's no like emotional stakes, there's no character change of any kind. It is just characters from one show walking through scenes of another show and remarking on it and explaining how they got there and how they're getting out of there. I wonder how much of this has to do with Darwin because, you know, out of one side of my mouth, I was praising the idea of getting the actor back to do this. So you remember in A Matter of Time in TNG, when Matt Frewer's character was in, like his plan had failed, you reached... An emotional climax with him. This is the uh, the con man from the future yeah. episode of TNG. But Darwin is so flat throughout this episode that I think that was the thing maybe that primarily prevented me from, from feeling like there were any stakes. Yeah. They didn't give him a lot to do. Yeah, they really didn't. He didn't have a lot to do in the original episode, I think. No, and maybe by, by increasing the stakes, you make it less fun. There's, there's like a push and pull to yeah. these elements. It's interesting to talk all of this stuff out. It's making more sense the more we do. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll talk about it a little bit more on the next episode of our other podcast, The Greatest Discovery, because we're going to be revisiting The Trouble with Tribbles on that, right? That's right. So uh, go listen to that after you listen to this. And let's go check out Priority One Messages. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental yeah, it's extra. But the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Adam, we have a couple of Priority One messages here. The first one is from the JS Guild trademark. And it's for Andrew WH. Goes like this. Congratulations, Dad. May your child turn out to be more like Lal than Wesley, the boy. Kids grow up fast, though not as fast as Troy's son. Enjoy your time at home together, and we'll see you back on the bridge. Ah, oh. That's very sweet, except for Lal dies early. <laughs> oh. That's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least at least Wesley turns into, like, a being of pure light or something. <laughs> hey, we don't know that. I mean, he, I turned into that, he turned into that being, but what happened after, who knows? Yeah. He's like a traveler type now. Yeah. I guess if your son turns into a traveler, that probably means you're not really in touch with them any further and that would be sad if you were offered the chance to become a traveler person but the cost was lobster hands <laughs> would you take the traveler up on that deal yeah I mean what am I using my hands for I don't know man I do all my typing with my thumbs Adam I'm on that smartphone all I'm saying is that it wouldn't be an immediate yes I'd rather have lobster hands than be lol. I'm not trying to drag the JS Guild TM for what uh, for what they're saying here. I think it's a well-intentioned, nice message. <laughs> I'm not trying to drag anyone either. I'm trying to drag the traveler. Yeah. 
I can see that you have a strong anti-traveler bias. Yeah. Very ugly. Ben, our second priority one message is from I'm Gowron Burgundy. (laughs) And the message is for JL Pipes and crew. Hey, we know these guys. Yeah. Message goes like this. You guys are the best FOD fleet in timelines. Can you believe Captain to the Uxbridge is telling the other fleets that our Admiral Hip Hop and Flopser is five drop bears stacked on top of each other in a trench coat? They are without honor, and their starbase smells of cabbage. Wow. I did that line read in that way where I, I just turned off my brain, and yeah. I was like, I'm reading these words in the order that they're there. I don't That's know a, what they mean. It's a warm honeyed bosom level of impenetrable. It is. It is. Star Trek Timelines. I've yet to play that. Maybe there's a Twitch stream in your future. Could be. Uh, what there is in our future every week, our priority one message has been. Yeah, so if you would like to leave one, head to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. It's 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message. We really appreciate it because it's help, helping us to afford to make this show. Hey, Adam. It's that, Ben. Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Drunk Shimoda! I'm going to be brief. If you unsolicited just put out into the world that you think it would be a good idea to fuck your great grandma, <laughs> that makes you a drunk Shimoda. And so wow. my drunk Shimoda is Dr. Bashir. Adam, I'm going to be brief. <laughs> Many episodes end on a slide whistle, Uh but very few characters are a slide whistle. (laughs) But in this episode, one character is, that is Quirk. Mm. Indeed, he's wearing that triple hat. A good time so often has a downside, doesn't it? Especially when it comes to stuff that you put in your birdie. We've all been hungover before. I mean, many of us have, I guess. Or we've had too much jazz in our gummy. And that sucks, right? Because you don't think about the time after the good time that you've been trying to have a good time. That's why I like Lumi Labs so much. It's the predictability. Through painstaking trial and error, I have found my perfect dose. It's what I can depend on when I can use a little more chill, a little help getting into a creative headspace, and I don't need to have too much fun doing whatever it is I need to be doing. And I'm so glad that Microdose is available nationwide. That means just about anyone can try it. To learn more about Microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use the code SCARVES to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Again, that's microdose.com and the code is SCARVES. One of the amazing things about making The Greatest Generation is getting to see all of the cool, creative stuff that the Friends of DeSoto make when we do a Code 47 episode. People send in handcrafted stuff all the time, and they send in their books, they send in paintings, they send in uh, crochet work. It's so cool. And uh, I want a few more of you to have websites to direct us to in those letters. I want you to put your beautiful work on display for the world so that when we get to look at it, we can tell people where to go to get a look at it themselves. 
And you don't have to know anything about building a website to build a website these days because you can use Squarespace. It'll look beautiful no matter what kind of device people are looking at it on. Hell, you can even sell stuff using a Squarespace website. Don't make your cool creative project captain's eyes only. Head to squarespace.com scarves for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Ben, what are we watching on the next episode? Next episode is, uh, well, in addition to the episode of The Greatest Discovery we already mentioned, the next episode of this show is Season 5, Episode 7, Let He, his, let he Who Is Without Sin. <laughs> While vacationing on the planet Risa, uh-oh, Worf falls under the influence of a traditionalist group bent on destroying the pleasure paradise. Oh, boo. Yeah, get these fucking Puritans out of my fuck fantasy. <laughs> it's not where they belong. Yeah, get them out of here. I mean, unless your thing is fucking Puritans, which it could be, I guess. Uh, only with enthusiastic consent, Adam. <laughs> right. Wow. Well, uh... What do you say we see how we're going to watch that episode? Adam, I uh, suddenly have a hankering to play some games, specifically the game of buttholes, The Will of the Prophets. So I'm heading over to gach.biz slash game. All right. Where, where we keep the wheel of fate that determines how our next episode will be performed. You're required to learn as you play. Roll. And I'm going to go ahead and say this. <laughs> Whatever we land on is going to is going to be true not just for the next episode of The Greatest Generation, but also for the next episode of The Greatest Discovery. What? Because we're going to be reviewing... Uh, they, I, th I think they're both the next episode after this episode. All right. 
So it's not the stakes aren't that high, but we could land on a the naked now, so we would have to record two episodes from the bathtub. It's true, Ben. Danger ahead, danger behind. Yeah. I'm stuck in this podcast with you. We could also land on that banger. Uh, so I'm gonna go ahead and roll it. Oh my goodness, I think we hit the banger because we are now back on square 19. Chula! Did I win? Hardly. Shoot. We're going backwards, Ben, on this board. Yeah. We, we have not made a ton of progress on this board lately. No. But a plain old episode, a, a good old episode, right? The best kind. Yeah, we're going to have fun. Did you know that you are currently viewing the best Star Trek podcast? Wow. It's true. Fuck. There's only one way a show like this is possible. It's through the support of our many viewers. That's true, Adam. People who would like to support the show may do so monetarily by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate and setting up a recurring monthly donation. But they could also do so uh, by uh, just leaving a nice review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast software they use. I think, uh, is it Stitcher that I saw that we only have one review on? What? Yeah, there's like a couple a couple of podcasts, uh, podcatcher apps out there that we have very few reviews on. So if you use Stitcher or Spotify or any of those, go ahead and uh, get get a review in there. I, I think we could really use it on, on some of the non-Apple podcast platforms. Wow. Really underachieving in a couple of areas. Yeah. Why are you letting the Apple users rack up 2,700 reviews or whatever when when you're on some other platform leaving zero reviews? The people who hate Apple products and software have got a ton of energy. They're incredibly vocal whenever the concept of Apple podcast is mentioned on the internet. They're in that comment section going, fuck Apple or whatever. Like, turn your crankiness into something positive. Exactly. Jeez. Yeah, it's perfectly fine as far as I can tell. You seem to be very angry at it. Maybe let that anger uh, blossom into something beautiful. Mm. Something positive. That sounds nice. It would be great. (laughs) Great week in and week out are the collectible joke trading cards made by Bill Tilly. You can find those on Twitter at Bill Twilly. At Bill Twilly, 1973. <laughs> uh, Bill Twilly is, is of course, the Twitter account that uh, that makes garments <laughs> out of every yeah. episode we do. Yeah. Nice, nice wicking jokes. <laughs> Adam is on Twitter at Cut for Time. I'm on there at Benjamin AHR. Everybody uses the hashtag Greatest Gen to talk about the show. There's also a Wikia. There's a Reddit sub, there are Facebook groups, all kinds of places to meet up with the friends of DeSoto online and joke around and have a blast. Music's by Adam Ragusia and Dark Materia. Thanks to our buddy Nick Dittmer for uh, making the great new artwork on the show. Yeah, pretty slick stuff. I look forward to seeing that airbrushed on the side of a van. And with that, we'll be back at you next time with another great episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and an episode of The Greatest Generation Deep Space Nine which has its horgon displayed prominently.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.